frosty new episode. Welcome back to my seminary life, and I realize I have a selfie ring on this thing, but I don't have it on. Oh my goodness, what happened to my computer? Okay, that's better. This is why I shouldn't have a podcast, because I am not tech-savvy enough to keep this going. Hi everybody, welcome back to the show, another exciting edition of Apologetics 101, clearly as I continue to bumble stumble my way through every single episode, 110 or so episodes later, still just completely messing everything up. But on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the apologists that you should know, or at least a few apologists that you should know. Welcome back once again. I'm your host, Brandon Knight. I am a graduated seminary student who is happy to continue to talk about all things all things seminary with you all if you want to. And it seems like, at least on this topic of apologetics, y'all still want more. You want more. More and more, you greedy little audience. I'm just kidding. You guys are great. So excited. Second episode here on the Anazal Ministries Podcast Network. Shout out to uh, all of you. There was a huge bump in listeners, new followers on social media. So thank you for checking out the show. And I hope you continue to come back week after week for more seminary apologetic fun. Today, we're going to be discussing, again, the apologists that you should know. We're also going to be discussing a couple resources I've been digging into the past couple weeks, give you some of my thoughts on them as well. Here's a a little footnote, a little disclaimer before we get into this list of apologists. This is not even remotely close to a complete list. Actually, if I'm just going to put my cards out on the table... We have three people here because, well, that's just all the time I had to give to this this week. I I am entering a very busy next couple of weeks, and so we are we are uh, only I only had time to go over a few people, but these are important people, and at least for these first two names, we're going to discuss here. On the episode, these are possibly names that you have heard spoken time and time again, but you don't know what the big deal is about them. And so hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of a couple great apologists. Make sure you are following the show on social media at My Seminary Life Pod on Facebook and Instagram. For all of you new listeners, if you haven't checked us out over there yet, please do. And by the way, we have another live stream event coming up. For those of you new listeners, we have live stream events, uh, little hangouts on Facebook every time we hit one of the show's goals and thanks to this huge bump in listenership we've already hit the downloads goal for the year I'm not good at setting this goal because I just I'm constantly you guys are constantly breaking this one so uh May 22nd it's going to be on Facebook we're going to be going live on Facebook so make sure you follow the show so you can stay up to date on updates and there is a post in that event page where i'm serious y'all what should we talk about 
What should we talk about? Give me give me some material. Ask a question. Throw me a topic. Something. Doesn't even have to be seminary related. Doesn't have to be apologetics related. Just throw me a topic. Because I am so busy right now that I do not have time to think about it. So just if you could write the script for me, I would appreciate it. All right. So let's talk about apologists. Apologists. These are the people who have devoted part, if not all, of their life in ministry to this subject of apologetics, thinking critically, using reason and logic, and writing some great books. This is like quasi like a book recommendation episode of things that you need to go read uh, from these three people. Again, this is nowhere near an exhaustive list, and uh, it does look like we are going to do Apologetics 201 in the future, so hopefully when we get around to that, I will have more time, and maybe we could talk about more than just these three fellas, starting with St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, for uh, those of you are our good friends over at the uh, Whole Church Podcast, this is actually TJ's favorite theologian and philosopher of all time. Definitely TJ's favorite philosopher and theologian. And for good reason, uh, because Aquinas is considered the theologian, the philosopher of the Middle Ages, of the medieval times. Aquinas is looked at as the guy. He was born in 1224, okay, just to give you a time frame of when all this is taking place, in Italy. Uh, he taught in Paris. Uh, he was canonized, that means he was given the title of saint, in 1326. He wrote extensively, most known for his systematic, the- systematic theology work, Summa Theologica. Okay, So as you are taking notes, underline that to add to your book list later on. His writings are very dense very logically dense i've i've read of aquinas myself here and there but i did see, sit down to read his treatise on law and yes it is quite dense it's a short read but it's it's very it's very heavy a lot i'm going to say that a lot throughout this episode is that this person wrote a very dense book and it's also very heavy so Here are some of the things that Aquinas wrote about, talked about, taught. And as you can see from these examples, we are we've been talking about this either directly or indirectly referencing him throughout the past several weeks. So starting off first with Revelation, not the book, but like God revealing himself. He believes uh, we receive revelation from God. God reveals himself in nature and by scripture full of for a fuller revelation. Okay, so we get a fuller picture of God in scripture, but we can know of God through nature. On On faith, he agrees with Augustine that it is based on God's revelation in Scripture. Human reason is not the basis of faith in God, but helps us seek truth. So, in Aquinas' worldview, 
Reason and logic is not a part of the salvation process, understanding the reason and the logic behind God and salvation doesn't doesn't get you to a point of salvation, but it does help you post-salvation as you grow in your faith. On reality, following Aristotle, ooh, a wise man seeks order. Order in reason produces logic and in actions produces ethics. Doesn't that sound fancy, doesn't it? <laughs> so I'll just I'll, I'll run that back one more time. A wise man seeks order. And I would say um, greater than just a wise man, God, Christians seek order and bring order out of the chaos. That's what God did in creation. That's what God is doing in our lives as he continues to uh, work in us, sanctify us to the image of Jesus, and work through us in the created world. I believe that is what it, you could—I think you can look at it that way, as God is bringing order through the chaos, order in the chaos through us and within our own lives as well. And as a wise man seeks— order. Uh, order in reason produces logic. So it when you pursue order, that is going to produce in you mentally a component for logic, being able to be a logical person in this Aristotle Aquinas view. And in actions produces ethics. Okay, so when you are pursuing order in your life, when you're pursuing order in the world, that is demonstrated by ethics. And that is one area that we're not going to be able to get into this go around, the conversation of ethics. Because ethics kind of is in this weird third category where it's it comes up in apologetics, it comes up in philosophy, it kind of comes up in theological studies as well. It, it touches on each one of those. It's one of those, you know, circle diagrams. What do you call those? Venn diagrams. And like in the middle, if you did all of these circles in the middle would be the conversation on ethics. So hopefully either A, during Apologetics 201, we'll have a week to discuss ethics and ethic viewpoints or we might just do a whole class on ethics at some point. I did take an ethics class in college, so I know it can happen. I know those do exist, and probably more pastors should take ethics courses. I'm getting off track here. So when you do, when you are pursuing a life of reason in actions, that's going to produce an ethical standard of living. In knowledge, similar to his view on Revelation, we gain knowledge through experience and by Scripture. So it's generally through experience, largely through Scripture. His concept of first principles guides uh, growth in knowledge through experience. These first principles is kind of this like... Uh, philosophical framework that Aquinas has for how we engage with ourselves and with others. And when you walk through these first principles, that can, takes your experiences and turns them into knowledge. That is the best I can do when it comes to explaining first principles, because it's a little complicated. On God, on the topic of God, 
Only he is pure being. Pure and being are capitalized. While everything else has being. Kind of going to... uh, going to that whole idea of Jesus being truly God and truly man, God in of himself is pure being because his essence is identical to his existence. God is a necessary being necessary. Also being capitalized. God has no potentiality, meaning the, he cannot change, meaning he is eternal, meaning he is unlimited He argues for the existence of God off of these five things. Unmoved mover, burst cause, necessary being, most perfect being, and designer of nature. And we've talked about each one of those either explicit, uh, either directly or indirectly, unmoved mover, first cause, necessary being, most perfect being. We talked about even uh, designer of nature. I think all of these come up back when we talked about the the existence of God in the Does God Exist episode a few weeks ago. So a lot of our understanding of how to argue for the existence of God comes from this, comes from St. Thomas Aquinas's five approaches to five approaches to teaching about God. I do find his um, God has no potentiality idea to be I find it interesting and I think this is where talking to someone who has more of a process theological worldview which Josh and I have discussed and TJ have discussed on the show before of process theology I think discussing with them like discussing with someone like Trip Fuller or others who kind of fall, who fall more in this process, the theology worldview, um, how this idea of God has no potentiality, how they would understand that, because this definitely has guided Christian thought for, uh, you know, decades, century. Um, this idea of like, God cannot change. And it, I, I mean, obviously, the way that I read scripture is that this is, you know, this is what the Bible teaches. Others don't read it that way. But this also goes all the way back to Aquinas, who very much, very much is adamant that God cannot change. And the fact that God has no potentiality and that he does not change hinges the reality of him being eternal. If God it has potentiality, that means he can change. And to Aquinas, that means he is not eternal. So I find all of that very interesting because how does that, you know, how would a process theologian, there we go, I finally said it right, process theologian, how would they inter, how would they understand that viewpoint? And also, how does that work? Well, with Jesus, you have the truly God and truly man aspect. So like Jesus in his humanity had potentiality. He did grow up. Luke talks about him learning and other places where Jesus had like limited knowledge in his humanity. So yeah, complicated. It gets complicated. So that's our first guy, St. Thomas Aquinas. We do not have a lot of our philosophical understanding and argue, uh, 
apologetic argument without Aquinas. Up next is another name that you've probably heard a lot, and actually you just heard me say a few minutes ago, and that is Augustine. That's Augustine, not Augustine, Augustine. Okay, So Augustine was born in 354 in North Africa. His mother was a Christian and preached to him regularly. He did not become a Christian for a very long time. Um, Contrary to his upbringing, he went into a path of spiritual wandering. He was a part of the Manachians, which is an interesting group. It does not exist anymore, but like the, I think you could say like, in theory, it kind of exists because it was like a um, very new agey approach to religion at the time of this. Uh, it was a mixing of several different religions into one, several different thoughts. Um, there was a little bit of Christianity in there. They rejected the Old Testament at large, uh, but it was a, a meshing of several different religions into one, this Manachians. Um, in time, he uh, became a Christian while teaching rhetoric in Italy. He was a rhetoric teacher. Uh, after that point, he quit teaching. He opened a monastery and became a bishop. So major change for Augustine after his conversion that is not required to quit your job, start a monastery, and become a bishop whenever you get saved. However, uh, that is the path for Augustine. He is known for really two big works. There is a third one that is popular as well on the Trinity. Like, literally, that's the title. But the two I want to highlight here is, first off, the book you've probably heard of quite frequently, Augustine's Confession. And we've talked about confessions here before, that this was kind of like your spiritual biography book, uh, your spiritual growth, your, your testimony book. And typically, there was also a confession of some sin in your life that was like a, like a major pivotal moment in your life. <laughs> And obviously then, because of uh, this very brief version of Augustine's conversion that you've heard now, you can imagine that the confession really covers a whole lot of his life. Um, this has caused countless debates on total depravity and free will, uh, not, along with getting the whole uh, understanding of his life journey and getting an, uh, a look at the Manachians. You also, this is where we get the long-standing debate with another guy we're going to talk about here in a moment about total depravity, free will, how does this all work? Uh, Augustine's other most well-known book is City of God. It's massive, or so I've been told. I actually have not read City of God for myself, uh, but it is a massive work on history, the kingdom of God, and a Christian's relationship to government. Now, this is obviously set within Augustine's time frame, and so when we're talking about government, we're talking about like the Roman government because that was still the international power at the time in control of everything. But 
this has continued to influence Christian thought on our relationship to the government. Actually, back during uh, the local church ministry series, lost the name, during the local church ministry series, we had uh, a week where we were talking about uh, a, a, the Christian's relationship to the government, and this book came up uh, during that conversation. We were looking at several different books that are very popular on this topic and trying to determine like which ones best suited us. None of this stuff, however, is necessarily like explicitly apologetic in nature. So let's talk about some of the very specific ways Augustine contributed to the conversation of apologetics. Uh, much of his writings are against the teachings of the Manachians. So having been a part of that group for, I think it was like anywhere between seven and 10 years. I can't remember exactly right now, but having been a part of this religious movement for almost a decade, um, he was well-versed in their teachings. And so after his conversion, that was a big, that was a big area for Augustine to address was this religious movement, their teachings, and to educate his congregation as a bishop on what they were teaching and what as Christians we believe. Evil is a privation of good. We talked about that. Remember when just last week talking about the problem with evil pain and suffering that Augustine believes that this is a uh, privation evil is a privation of good like I said the Manachians had a problem with the Old Testament and the Old Testament is full of fallen people but that doesn't reflect God's character that was a big thing for the Manachians why they rejected a lot of the Old Testament is because it's full of these flawed people who did horrible things in the name of God and so that discredited God's character and Augustine explained in his works how that's that's not true how those are not a reflection of God's character how these people are behaving in the Old Testament. Discerning spiritual truth comes through believing and then reasoning. Just talked about that a moment ago with Aquinas. And he de- uh, debated Pelagius on the state of man. So this to this day is still an ongoing debate. Augustine said that man was born into sin, that we are in total depravity from the get-go. Pelagius came along and said, no, man is a blank slate and has to learn how to be evil, is what uh, was Pelagius. And this is a very simplified view. And you might not consider yourself an Augustian or a, a Pelagian, but you might consider yourself a Calvinist or, or an Arminian, which picked up this conversation all those hundreds of years later. And still to this day, we are divided on this idea. Here's just my brief thought. As I've said before, I'm somewhere in the Calvinistic camp. That's I, I definitely fall more on the Calvinistic side. I have been engaging more of the Pelagian, Arminian view as of late, just to better educate myself, honestly. But I gotta say, the idea 
I do affirm where the Bible talks about how we are born spiritually dead. That's um, Ephesians chapter one. I think that comes up. I believe it's in Ephesians. Uh, for sure, it's Ephesians. I think it's in chapter one, probably chapter two as well. That it comes up that we are born to spiritual death. Um, we are slaves of sin, as Paul writes in the book of Romans. Like it, and we are then ransomed into slaves of righteousness. So I do affirm all those things. I do believe those things. But when you have a kid, you begin to question a little bit this idea of totally depraved or do we learn? Because being a parent now for, at the recording of this, just shy of a whole year, and this is going to come out just shy of a whole year of being a parent being the experience would dictate that maybe just maybe we do learn how to sin. We do learn how to do evil that we're not necessarily totally depraved from the get go that we're a bit more of a clean slate, maybe not an absolute clean slate. Cause again, being a slave to sin and being born spiritually dead does indicate that we would act particular ways that we might be bent more towards a certain path but you definitely like you get this understanding of like huh like my kid's crying and i want him to go to sleep but he's not crying to be a jerk and he's not crying to get attention he's crying because this is the only way he knows how to communicate right now you know, the, and anyway, I'm getting off onto a whole other thing here, but that's just my thinking on this has shifted within the past year. And you longtime listeners know this, and I should probably say it right now because there has been a bump in new listeners. I reserve the right to change my mind. That is that is something that I made clear in all the way back in the very first episode of the show, I reserve the right to change my mind because that's, I believe I'm a work in progress and how this show works of me getting on studying and talking about what I've been studying. Like as new information comes, as I pray, as I reflect, you know, things are going to change. I can't be the only one who has rewritten a sermon before because they realized they were way off the last time they preached it. So when it comes to Augustine, before we go to our third man, our final man for this episode, when it comes to Augustine, I think the big thing that we can take away from him is that you can be theological, you can be very philosophical, and you can still work at the ground level. Like Aquinas, yeah. He was a professor and thought very lofty. And that's what you see for a lot of these guys is, you know, they were professors, they were book writers, they were thinkers, they were whatever. And the intellectual side of Christianity is often pushed aside as this, like, it doesn't do us any good. But Augustine, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him on the state of man or not, I think a good thing that we can take from Augustine is this idea that you can be a very theological, philosophical-minded person and still be a pastor. You can still be a small group leader. You can still be a, a 
Christian content creator, that you can still engage your children well in parenting. And I think that's a big thing that we need right now is that we we need people who are going to think. We are going to we need more pastors who are theologically and philosophically minded who are going to address the current popular heresies of the day outside of just getting all in a twist over whatever related to the LGBTQ plus community because that seems to be the only thing people want to get upset about from the pulpit. Um like we need to address the heresies, meet them head on, because our flock is hearing these things. Our congregations, our audiences, our children are hearing these things. We need to address them thoughtfully, theologically, philosophically, but also to make it practical for our congregations. So that's the big encouragement from Augustine, and that's my big encouragement for you as we continue this series of it's good that we are using reason and logic and talking about philosophy and ethics, but we need to still be able to make it work on the street level. Third, and finally, is a man who surprisingly hasn't come up yet, but is no stranger to the show. That's right, folks. C.S. Lewis. Because if it's an episode of My Seminary Life and I don't quote C.S. Lewis, was it really an episode of My Seminary Life then? That's the big question, kids. He was born in Northern Ireland in 1898 and is considered the leading apologist of the 19th century. He was agnostic for a period of his life until his, uh, he was 30 as a professor at Oxford uh, until his good friend, your friend and mine, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, understood the scripture, or explained, rather, the scripture as myth-made reality, which is truly a whole conversation in of itself. I really wish I could find a, like a podcast or maybe a blog that would be devoted to thinking with the inklings, just like talking and or reading about the inklings, not just Lewis and Tolkien, but like all of them, because there was a lot of those guys in the group. They're just not as well known as Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, Lewis described himself as the most reluctant convert who was bowing to the inevitable. All the logic of God's existence began to make sense. Wait a second. I thought Aquinas and Augustine said that reason and logic are helpful to understand the faith, but not necessarily helpful to get to a point of believing in God. But C.S. Lewis said that for himself, and actually his most well-known book on apologetics that we're going to talk about here in a moment, would argue that reason and logic is helpful in getting to the point of salvation. Huh. Does that mean we can have three three men from three different time periods in two different parts of the church, because Aquinas and Augustine would have been Catholic and 
C.S. Lewis became Anglican, um, that we can all kind of like disagree, but also maybe still get along and quote one another. Huh. Interesting. Obviously, <laughs> Lewis is known uh, for a lot of books. I mean, the guy wrote a lot after his conversion. And choosing out C.S. Lewis's greatest hits is kind of like me trying to figure out my favorite My Chemical Romance album. Like, Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Guild of Joys, that was my, like, entrant that was my like entrance drug that got me hooked on my chemical romance. But three cheers for sweet revenge is the album that has my favorite MCR song of all time on it. But like, seriously, it's sacrilege not to pick welcome to the black parade, even though like maybe I like some of the songs on there, but they're not all bangers. It's similarly with CS Lewis. Like it's just hard to come up with a, with a, you know, greatest hits list. Somebody, someone's favorite is going to get left off the list. You know, if you got me, Joshua Knoll, Joe Day, and Matthew Winter all in the same room, and we were told, okay, pick out your five picks, and you can only, the Chronicles of Narnia do not count as one. You have to pick one book at a time. If you got all of the, we would have very different lists, and somebody's favorite would get left out. So, whose favorites are going to get left out on this list? Let's find out. So, obviously, Lewis wrote quite a bit by way of fiction. Uh, There is, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That is the, you know, Christ dying for our sins. It is the passion of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, The rest of them teach Christian themes, not necessarily apologetically, although this book series has influenced uh, children and adults on the teachings of Christianity for decades now. Disney made movies of them. Netflix is currently developing new movies of them. Like, this is a game changer in the world of Christianity. But ironically, the book that they bring up as his most groundbreaking work of fiction, The Screwtape Letters, that was the other big one that they wanted to address from the fiction side of things, is The um, is the Screwtape Letters, which for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with them, them, it's one book, they're letters. It's, it's good. I think it would make my top five, but... Maybe barely, but maybe be number six if I really sat down and thought about it. It's good. It's it's about a junior demon whose uncle Screwtape is writing him letters, giving him advice on how to tempt people. That's the general premise of the book. Again, not necessarily apologetic in nature, nature. But it does shed a different light on this subject that isn't cheesy and corny. If I can give Screwtape Letters any type of props, it's not a judgment house, that's for sure. It's still very tastefully done, and there is reason and logic that goes into 
this writing of the story and the things that Screwtape writes to his nephew. One of his other more specifically related to the field of apologetics works is his book Miracles, which if you go all the way back to the the before times (laughs) at this point, um, there was an episode where I talked about some of the Lewis's views on miracles. The book is a, you guessed it, dense read uh, that exposes how it is impossible to be a naturalist. Okay, hold on to your hats. Ready? Because it breaks the law of non-contradiction as it claims you cannot know that nothing is beyond uh, our natural world because you live you have to be beyond the natural world in order to make a claim like that. Okay. Did that make any sense at all? If it didn't, you probably should read the book. I need to reread the book. Uh, It does have in the episode that I covered here on the show does talk more about his uh, theological views on how miracles work and how it is a routine breaking of the natural law in order for God to intervene. So yes, it's a big, it's a big one. It's, it's dense and it can sound very confusing, but Hey, I've always found it helpful to read books out loud when I have when it's a little complicated. So, but the the big one, the book, the book of all books with Lewis on the topic of apologetics is Mere Christianity, which initially was a radio series that a radio a set of radio programs that Lewis delivered during um, World War II during the bombings in England. And this was uh, then converted into his book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to summarize it here, and I'm going to do it dirty. I'm going to tell you, this is a very simple explanation of what Mere Christianity is all about. Simply, Lewis uh, sets out to show it is logical that God exists and that Jesus is divine. That's parts one and two. Part three deals with ethics, and part four deals with the Trinity. Okay, That was almost an oversimplification of what this book is all about. Of all of the books we've, we've highlighted today, Summa Theologica, Augustine's Confessions, City of God, Miracles, Mere Christianity, of those four, I'm not really going to count screw tape letters and chronicles of narnia like they're good they're important you should read them but of those four big ones read mere christianity if you're going to take any of these books and do something after this episode take mere christianity get mere christianity and that's not me being lewis bias seriously if you never read summa theologica you're gonna be fine just going to let you know. Yes, you should read Augustine's Confession. That's probably the one you should read afterwards. And you should probably get to City of God. We should get to City of God. I'm actually considering doing like a reoccurring bonus episode that will be very infrequent of 
like called like book report or Brandon's reading list or something like that, where I talk about some of these books that I've been meaning to read for a long time. And I'm finally just now getting around to it. That might be a fun one too. Cause like every pastor has that stack of books somewhere in their office or on their bookshelf that they just haven't gotten to yet. So I imagine that this would be an easy one to get people to guest on to talk about books because books are great. And like I said at the top, this is by no means even remotely near an exhaustive list of influential apologists or even just like influential philosophers. We haven't talked about Immanuel Kant, Soren Kierkegaard, Blaise Pascal, Francis Schaeffer, Timothy Keller, even Lee Strobel. Like all of these men have contributed in a variety of different ways to uh, theological philosophy, ethics, and apologetics in different ways. So hopefully during, or for sure, during Apologetics 201, we'll cover some more of these men. And I've been trying to highlight over on social media different articles and podcasts related to other apologists. So that way we can be a little bit more familiar with people, maybe get some of the deep, deep cuts you know, as as important as Aquinas, Augustine, and Lewis are, they are like the more common fellas in this conversation. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and highlight a few additional resources that I've been checking out these past couple of weeks. I meant to do this on last week's episode, but I forgot. So here we are. We're going to talk about two today. First one is Mama Bear Apologetics. This is for everybody, but specifically talking to you, mother at home, listening to this show. Mama Bear Apologetics is a podcast and blog and with a few books as well, aimed at Christian women, specifically moms, who the hosts of the show, they want to bring the topic of apologetics to women, to mothers, to educate them on the subject, educate them on big philosophical things going on in the world right now. So that way they can then be better informed themselves, know how to practically take the information and run with it. And also then to teach their cubs, the, um, a biblical, philosophical, reasonable, logical way to address current cultural issues. So had a, a highlighted an article from them about why apologetics needs women and also one about how to engage Jehovah Witnesses when they come to the door. So shout out to them. Go check their stuff out. And then this week, been highlighting resources articles from Answers in Genesis, which is a little bit more focused on creationism versus evolution, which is another subject we're going to have to cover in Apologetics 201, talking about um, creation theories, a little bit broader of just like, here are the different views that come up. Anyway, so Answer in Genesis is more focused on the creationism, intelligent design versus evolution uh, viewpoint. Did have a pretty good article highlighted this week on the existence of God, 
which we have very recently talked about. So a few other additional thoughts came from that. Uh, linguistic arguments, the development of language as an argument for the existence of God is an interesting argument that we have not talked about. So go check that article out. And then totally a for fun one. I just needed like something fun to read. I was really tired this week. So I just needed a fun one to read. And uh, there's current scientific research going on that is discovering that it is quite possible that Tyrannosaurus Rex had lips that covered their teeth. Normally they're depicted with like their teeth showing and new research is starting to show that there is a possibility that they had lips that covered their teeth. I'm like trying to do this into the microphone, which makes for bad audio. And it's not like you can see me do this right now, but it's like going to click. Yeah. Anyway. So check that article out. If you're a, a science nerd, check that one out too. Um, and check out Answers in Genesis. They got a lot of resources on there, articles, videos, homeschool curriculum, like a whole, whole bunch of stuff on there uh, to educate yourself on the topic of creationism versus evolution. So that's it for today's episode. If we can take anything home with us besides a reading list is, again, going back to that um Going back to Augustine, and even I find a lot of similarities between Augustine and C.S. Lewis, maybe not necessarily in their teachings, but in like their life and their life after Christianity, of or life after conversion, I could say, not life after Christianity, um, life after conversion, of we need to be thinking theologically, we need to be thinking reasonably and logically, and philosophically we need to be engaging science and ethics but we need to do it practically minded we need to do it in a way that is going to continue to educate the flock on heresies and teach them what scripture actually has to say and also um, to be able to take these things in a practical way that are going to um continue to reinforce in the congregate in our congregation in our audience in our children's minds that um what the teaching of scripture has to say i guess is what i'm trying to get to this we need to make this all very practical still and that is a continual check and balance that i need to have here on the show because my seminary life is geared towards making christians more intellectually minded but we can't do this at the sacrifice of not still being practical. Um, head knowledge is good. I think head knowledge does lead to worship, particularly done well. It can lead to worship, but I think we need to also still take our knowledge and make it practical because that's what wisdom is, at least from the Jewish mindset in the book of Proverbs and the rest of the wisdom literature is that knowledge applied is wisdom. So don't just soak this all up and do nothing with it. Read these books, transform your thinking, and think how you can engage the teachings of the day thoughtfully and encourage your audience, encourage your uh, congregation, whoever it may be, your family, to think critically and to worship God through it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Uh, as always, you can go into the description of this episode to find links to the My Seminary Life website shop. If you ever want to drop me a line, you can send it at 
email seminarylife at gmail.com. Once again, that's email seminarylife at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts for that upcoming live stream, I'd appreciate it. And oh, we're just two, we're a week away from graduation. So be on the lookout for pictures. And we are two weeks out from the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue Convention in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, there will be a link in the description to the Eventbrite. And again, you can use promo code pod to get a special pay what you can for the virtual ticket option so check that out hang out with us and if you can be there in person use promo code msl rocks all caps to get a discount if you can attend in person that's it yeah that's it so next week Next week on the show, I dropped a a little bit of a hint because we had this article recently on how to talk to Jehovah Witnesses. Next week, we're making a big pivot. Uh, We've been a little bit more philosophical these past few weeks. This is a pivot because the next two weeks, we're going to be talking more about world religions. We're stepping out of the box of Christianity, and we're going to go learn about other religions at a very high level. So we'll see how many we can get through, <laughs> see how many I can study about, and we'll be talking about world religions next week here on the show. But until next time, this is Brandon signing off, reminding you, as always, that theology is for everyone. So keep on studying. <laughs>